Once again, we've come to Psalm 58, so I encourage you to turn to Psalm 58. And while you're turning, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord for his help. Father, as we come uh, to your word tonight, uh, we recall that uh, one of the things your word tells us is that the one to whom you will look is the one who is upright in heart and who trembles at your word. So God, I pray that you would cause us to tremble tonight uh, in thanksgiving, in joy, but also in reverence that we hold your very words in our hands. And God, the words that we hold in our hands tonight in Psalm 58 are, are hard words. Uh, they're not the kind of words that we normally uh, are accustomed to reading, and yet they're yours. And so we pray that you would teach us from them, help us to believe what you say and to apply what you say. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And Psalm 58 is entitled, For the Choir Director Set to Al-Tasheth. That was the name of the tune, a miktam. Of David. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No, in heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or a skillful caster of spells. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance and will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. Now, read that. I read that this week and I thought to myself, wow, that's in the Bible? That's in the Bible? It doesn't sound quite like what we're used to hearing, especially sometimes from the lips of Jesus when he says if someone smites you on your right cheek turn your other cheek to them also or when he says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you David certainly is praying for those who persecute him in this psalm isn't he but he's not praying in the way that Jesus probably had in mind and so the question when we read this psalm tonight is what in the world are we to do with it and what do we do with other psalms that are like it there are other psalms like this one in this collection and it's hard to figure out how we're going to come to grips with them. And often the tactic of dealing with these psalms is just to skip over them, you know, not to read them, not to think about them, not to study them. But I'm kind of trapped tonight, right? Because I made the decision we're going to just study Psalms 51 through 60 in consecutive order. And so I don't have the option of just not dealing with this difficult psalm tonight. And so I have to ask, and we have to ask, what do we make of this? How do we come to grips with what David says here that seems so unfamiliar to us? And, and just before we even begin to look at the words in, in their specificity, that I just want to let you know there are three ways that you could possibly deal with a psalm like this one. Probably more than three, but three um, that would be the most uh, ready ways that someone might deal with a difficult passage like this one. First, someone might read Psalm 58 and say to themselves, 
well, we've, we've evolved beyond such things. That is to say, someone might read this and go, well, this is the Old Testament, you know. And the New Testament is much more genteel and civilized. Jesus would never have us pray like David has us pray here, shatter their teeth in their mouth. And so because Jesus wouldn't have us pray like that, this must no longer be relevant for New Testament people. And that sounds good. This is Old Testament. We're people of the New Testament, and so we we don't really need to apply Psalm 58. But I just remind you, while granting that there are different emphases in the New Testament and the Old, we also recognize that the New Testament itself tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, including this Scripture. And I'll remind you what we saw just a couple of weeks ago as we were studying in Luke 16, where Jesus said it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to pass away. In other words, Jesus says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away, if we could put it into our terms, than for the dash that separates a Q from an O to pass away. And just to show how that rubber meets the road, just to show that all Scripture, including this Scripture, is profitable, I'll also let you know Psalm 69 is much like Psalm 58. Psalm 69 is very difficult to get uh, a grasp of because of what is there. It's so challenging and difficult. Let me read you just a few verses. This is verse 24. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. That's similar to Psalm 58, isn't it? The psalmist is praying that God would punish, that God would judge. And the reason why I quote Psalm 69 is because Jesus quoted it three different times in the Gospels. And Paul quoted it once, just demonstrating that Even these difficult psalms, Jesus and the Apostle Paul said, this is helpful. I've memorized this. I'm going to quote this to the people whom I'm teaching. And so the New Testament, far from invalidating the usefulness of these psalms, actually affirms that Jesus used them and that Paul did as well. And that's a good reminder. Just before we say anything else about the psalm, that man, Jesus says, does not live by bread alone, but by every word spoken by the mouth of the Lord not just by the easy words but by every word so we can't read this psalm and say well it's in the old testament and we've moved beyond that and so it's really not for us but a second way that we might uh, try to approach it would be to say well okay yes God inspired psalm 58 and it's useful but it's useful to us and God inspired it intentionally as a bad example In other words, in an attempt to affirm that Psalm 58 is just as inspired by God as, say, the Sermon on the Mount, we might say something like this. Yes, God intended that David's hard words here would be in the Bible. In the same way that he intended that David's adultery would be recorded in the Bible. In the same way that he intended that Peter's denials of Jesus would be in the Bible. Not as examples for our imitation, but to warn us that even godly people make huge mistakes sometimes. And so... So we could read it and argue that, 
Yes, David really meant what he said in Psalm 58. He really meant that he wanted his enemies to be like miscarriages who never see the light of day. And we could say God even wanted us to hear what David said and what David meant. But the reason God wanted that was not because anything David said was right, but because God wants us to learn from David's mistakes, from his vindictiveness. And that would be a possible interpretation, but I don't think it's the case. Because, for one thing, usually when the Bible is giving us a bad example, when the Bible records something that actually happened, but that we're not to imitate, it usually tells us that. It usually gives us a hint that though I'm telling you this happened, though I'm telling you this person said this, this is not for you to imitate. This is a poor example. Usually the Bible clues us in on that. But nowhere do we have that about the Psalms. Nowhere do we have Jesus or Paul or anyone else coming and saying, you know, Psalms like Psalm 58, they're not there for us to imitate. They're there as poor examples. We don't have that kind of, kind of commentary. But then I would also say that Psalm 58 is not sort of an oddball aberration either. This is not the only psalm that's like this. There are about a dozen of them that are like this, some to more or less extent. And so because God sprinkled a dozen of them or so into these 150 psalms, we have to conclude that this wasn't just an off-the-wall kind of thing, but that there must be something that God wants us to see as this kind of psalm comes up. 10, 12, 15 times running in this book. And so that's the third way to interpret them, is to say to ourselves, we don't quite know what it is, but there must be something in David's calling out to God to avenge himself on his enemies. There must be something in what David's saying here that's right. There must be something positive that we should learn from these very difficult and negative psalms. God interspersed them all throughout the Psalter. Jesus quoted from these kinds of psalms favorably. So there must be something positive for us to glean from what David says. But even when we say that, if that's how we're going to approach the psalm, it's still difficult, isn't it? Because now the question is, well, what? What, is, what are we supposed to get out of it? Is this how Christians should typically pray for other people and if it's not how we should typically pray then when should we pray these kinds of prayers and about whom and really very important is the question how do we know that we shouldn't be the subject of the prayers and not just the speakers of them how do we know that david's not talking about us well I hope to consider all those sorts of questions as we work through these 11 verses in a few moments but just one one more um one more point before we kind of go through this psalm section by section, and that is just to give you some words of caution. It would be possible to read this psalm and to jump to some conclusions about what David's motivation is or about what David's meaning is in these psalms that would be totally off base. And so in order that we not do that, I want to pause and, and point out three things that this psalm is not. Okay, so before we say what this psalm is, let's say what it's not so that we don't leave confused. Three things. First, Psalm 58 is not an overflow of foolish pride. It's not an overflow of David's pride. In other words, those of us who know our Bibles and who know the doctrine of sin, those of us who know, in other words, that Romans 3, for instance, says there's none good, not even one. All have turned aside. Those of us who know that the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we might take what we know and, and think to ourselves, well, come on, David. 
Why are you on your high horse about those who walk in unrighteousness, verse 1, and those who are wicked, verse 3? You need to remember, David, that there's none righteous, not even one, including you yourself. And we might look at this and say, David, boy, he really doesn't understand that he's a sinner too. But remember Psalm 51, which we studied several weeks ago. Psalm 51 reminds us that David understood very well that he was a sinner. Let me just read to you three verses from that psalm, verses 3 through 5. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. So David understood that he was a sinner as well, and he repented in Psalm 51, as we've seen. So when we come to Psalm 58, we need to understand that he's not writing this psalm from a position of self-deception. David's not writing this psalm thinking, well, I never made any of these kinds of mistakes. I've never done anything this wicked. I've never been unrighteous, and I'm just going to throw stones at those who have never sinned. That's not David's position at all. David knows that his sin is ever before him. David knows as he writes this psalm but that there but by the grace of God go I. He knows that if God had not protected him, if God had not sent Nathan the prophet to him to convince him of his sin, that he might be just where these people are that he's writing about. And we need to remember that too as we go on and try to learn from this psalm. Let us not stand as though we have it all together and throw stones at the wicked. That's not what this psalm is about. Secondly, Psalm 58 is also not David's personal vendetta against his own enemies. In other words, this is, this is not a personal thing. David, remember, is speaking and writing as the leader of a nation. We don't know if when he wrote this he was yet king, but he was an adult. He was already a leader among God's people. He was anointed to be the king. And so when he writes, he's not simply concerned for his own welfare. Well, everybody's treating me bad, and so I'm just going to pray that God would just destroy them all. No, he's thinking about the welfare of his people and how whomever it is that he's speaking about, and he doesn't tell us, but whoever these people are who are doing so wickedly, how they are bringing down the nation. And more than that, David's concerned about their unrighteousness, verse 2, toward God. Toward God, right? That's what ought to make us, any of us most upset. is not that someone offends us, not that someone hurts our nation or even our church or our family, but that all of our sin is an offense to God, and that's what David's upset about. So Psalm 58 is not giving us permission to pray that God would settle personal scores for us. That's not what this is about. David praise the way he prays here out of concern for God's glory. And then thirdly, we need to say that Psalm 58 does not teach or condone actions of revenge, but prayer that God himself would avenge himself. David is not taking action against his enemies here. He is not out to get revenge. He's praying that God would take action, and that makes all the difference in the world. We saw this last week. David disdained taking revenge on his enemies, right? Saul was trying to kill him. For months and months and months, Saul was trying to kill him for no reason at all, 
and David twice, one time as Saul was hiding or, or sleeping in a cave, and another time as Saul was sleeping in the military camp, twice David stood over Saul and had a chance to take Saul's spear or take Saul's sword and just lop his head off and be done with him, and he wouldn't do it because he knew that Saul was the man that God had placed as king. Wicked a king as he was, David wasn't going to take revenge. And then there's another instance, you may remember, where David had done uh, very well towards a man named Nabal, taking care of his workers, and he asked Nabal for a little help with some food, and Nabal told him basically to go fly a kite. And David was so angry that he gathered his men and their weapons of war, and they were going to kill Nabal until Nabal's wife stepped in and said, please, don't do it, and she brought him food and she she calmed him down and David said essentially thank God that you intervened so that I didn't do something so foolish as to take revenge and shed all this blood and so even when he was angry he came to his senses and said I don't want personal revenge and that's not what this psalm is about either woe to the person who uses Psalm 58 as a chance or an excuse for personal revenge vengeance is mine says the Lord Romans 12 I will Repay, And the fact that David prays rather than acting shows us that he understood that. So those are just some thoughts about this psalm and really about all the psalms that are like this one. How do we deal with these difficult psalms where David or other psalmists seem to be praying down God's justice? And just since we're on sort of a John Piper kick tonight, he has a really good article about these kinds of psalms that's been really helpful to me. It's on the website desiringgod.org, and I printed it off here. There's some copies on the front pew if anyone's interested in reading more than what we can go into tonight. But all of that now, as an unusually long introduction, uh, now brings us to the text of the psalm itself. We've thought about how how to deal with these kinds of psalms. We've thought about uh, what this psalm is not saying. But now we get to the, the verses themselves, and we ask, okay, what is David getting at? What is he, what is he saying? How does it apply to us today? And should we ever pray like David prays? And if so, when should we pray like David prays? And to sort of answer those questions, I'm going to give you another set of three. I've given you three ways of approaching psalms like this one. I've given you three things that this psalm is not about. And now we'll divide the psalm itself into three portions. And I'll go ahead and tell you what they are. In verses 1 through 5, we are going to see David's assessment of God's enemies. His assessment of God's enemies. Then in verses 6 through 8, we're going to see David's prayer for God's vengeance. And then in verses 9 through 11, we're going to see David's thanksgiving for God's justice. So he assesses God's enemies, then he prays for God's vengeance upon those enemies, and then he gives thanks for God's justice toward himself and toward God's enemies. So three things. First, in verses 1 through 5, David's assessment of God's enemies. Let me just read those verses to you one more time. Listen to his appraisal. Listen to his evaluation of the wicked in verses 1 through 5. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No. In heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent. Like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or a skillful caster of spells. So you'll notice there, 
David's not yet praying anything, right? All he's doing is assessing the situation. He's making statements about God's enemies. He's just evaluating what they are like. And he doesn't tell us who the antagonists are in this psalm. Many of these psalms we've been seeing give us some hint as to who it is that he was dealing with or what the situation was. Here, we have no clue who he's talking about or what they were doing. But there are a a few things about God's enemies that we should notice in passing from these verses. Notice, first of all, that David is really mainly upset with the ringleaders of wickedness. You see that in verse 1 when he refers to them as God's small g. He's not here talking about Zeus uh, or, or... any of the other gods that we could think of. He's not thinking of the gods of the Amorites or the gods of the Canaanites. He's referring here to gods as a way that we sometimes think of great athletes are like gods or movie stars are like gods. These powerful, uh, talented people. That's who he's talking about. People who who are leaders. And they're not just leaders, but they're ringleaders. They are leading other people into sin. That's what he has in mind here. So what he's going to pray about God breaking out their teeth and so on, he's not praying that over just any old sinful person. He's praying what he prays towards people who are leading others into sin. It's the same thing we saw in Luke 17 on Sunday, isn't it? Where Jesus said that, It's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to be leading other people into sin. It's one thing to sin, right? But it's another thing to be leading other people into sin, and that's what he's talking about here. That's who he's so upset with. Just to give you a for instance about how this would look, I've been reading, as I've told you, about uh, the resistance, the German resistance in World War II. In other words, the people that were trying to overthrow Adolf Hitler. And uh, one of the things that was interesting in reading that is that the, um, the Americans and the British didn't always get it right. They weren't always like David. David understood that there were people who were leading everyone else to sin, and then there were people who were just sheep, who were following, who weren't excused because they followed, but who weren't the ringleaders of all that was going on. And the Americans and the British sometimes had the attitude, well, the only good German is a dead German. And so they just lumped everybody in together as though everybody were equally culpable, and that wasn't the case. There were leaders, not just Hitler, but there were other men who were pushing things along, and those are the kind of people that David is really upset with. Notice also that David wrote about people who wouldn't listen. The leaders, and specifically leaders who wouldn't listen, leaders who were like a deaf cobra stopping up its ear so that it didn't hear the voice of the charmers. So he doesn't pray these, these judgments over just any sinner, and he doesn't pray these judgments over just any leader. He's particularly concerned with leaders who are leading people into sin, but who have had opportunity to listen, to reason, and to repent, and have refused. They've stopped up their ears. That's what he's about. That's who he's about. And then notice also something interesting. Verse 3. Verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. That verse could have been written about any one of us in this room. Did you know that? When you were a little child, nobody had to teach you to lie, right? You came out of your mother's womb wanting what you wanted, screaming when you didn't get what you wanted, and then learning almost as soon as you learned how to talk, how to say, did you, did you break mommy's stapler? No, no. Yes, you did. 
but, but you knew. You knew how to lie. And so the point is, verse 3 really could be any of us. And David says the same kind of thing about himself. Remember in Psalm 51.5 when he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He says just what the New Testament says, I came out sinful by nature. I was not born a good person who somehow was corrupted by the bad people around me. I was born knowing how to sin, knowing how to want what I want, knowing how to want what I want when I want it, knowing how to lie in order to get it, knowing how to fuss in order to get it. That's his point. And so verse 3, though he's speaking about his particular enemies at a point in time, could be said about any of us. And that's why I say that we need to be careful about jumping on our high horses tonight and being so quick and ready to throw stones because if we know our own hearts, we know that the seeds of every kind of evil reside within each of our hearts. God has protected us, most of us, by the upbringing that we had. He's protected us, many of us, by the church influences that we've had and so on. But if we were left to ourselves, who knows where and what we might be. So even while we pray that God would act upon the wicked, we need to humble ourselves in the dust of repentance for our own sins. Those are some things to note about who David was praying about, but the main point of these five verses is this. Here's the deal. God's people need to have the backbone to stand up and call wickedness wickedness, especially when it's in high places. That's really what these first five verses of the psalm are all about. That we, you and I, who are followers of God, need to have the fortitude to say something when people of influence and power won't listen to reason and thereby lead other people astray and destroy other people by their actions. We need to have the courage, like David, to say to our culture and to the decision makers in it, for instance, it is wickedness to suck babies out of their mother's wombs somebody's got to say that we have to have the courage to say to foreign governments it is wickedness for you to allow teenage girls in your culture to be kidnapped and sold as sex slaves we need to say to our culture it's wickedness for the gambling industry to prey on foolish desperate people We need to be able to say it's wickedness for dictators like Mugabe in Zimbabwe or Hussein to destroy their own people and not to pretend to hell with them because of all the nonsense and false doctrine that they proclaim from their pulpits. This psalm also, I think, teaches us to say that what is happening, for instance, to Christians in China is deplorable. And it would be just as deplorable if it were happening to Jews or Muslims or Kurds or any other sort of person made in God's image. One of the reasons, going back to World War II, one of the reasons why the Holocaust went on so long and got so bad was because so few Christians in Germany and in the West spoke out like David speaks out here. And the ones who did speak out were not listened to by their brothers and sisters in Christ and by the people in high places. And things got out of hand very quickly because no one was willing to say what David was willing to say. So no, this psalm does not give us the prerogative to take matters into our own hands to get revenge ourselves. And yes, we ought to say whatever we say about wickedness in the world with deep humility in our own hearts about our own sins. But 
this psalm does teach us that it's right to say it, that it's right to stand against wickedness and the destruction of people made in God's image. And it's also teaching us, this psalm is, now in verses 6 through 8, that it's right to pray that God himself would stand against wickedness, not just with the words of our prayers, but with his own vengeance. So that's the second thing. The first thing is David's assessment of God's enemies. The second thing is David's prayer now for God's vengeance in verses 6 through 8. O God, he says, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Now the first thing that stands out there, I think stands out to all of us, is the graphic nature of those verses. These are, these are hard things, David says. And you get the feeling by reading them that David is not just praying this way because he feels like he ought to. You know, I'm a leader and so it's my duty to speak out against that which is wrong. No, David's colorful language in these verses hints at the fact that he felt strongly about these things. He was what we would call righteously angry or righteously indignant. Indignant, And again, we don't know what it was that was spurring him to pray this way. We don't know what it was that was making him so upset. But whatever it was, his language tells us he was sick at his stomach. And there's a lesson, therefore, I think, in, in just the strong language that David uses. Knowing that David was feeling a moral revulsion about what was going on around him, the lesson is that we ought to be morally repulsed by certain things as well. When we hear about human trafficking, when we hear about child abuse, when we hear about abortion or ethnic cleansing or the persecution of Christians or sexual immorality, or when we hear about false teachers who convince people that all will be well with their souls if they just put enough money in the tin, we ought to be sick. We ought to be morally revolted by those kinds of things. In other words, we ought not to just watch the news sometimes and go, boy, that's really sad. We ought to read the news or watch the news and say to ourselves, God, this is horrible. This is absolutely horrible. Stop it, God. Put an end to it. Break their teeth out. Do something. That's what we ought to feel. And then the second thing that stands out then is just what we said. Sin ought not to disgust us only, but that disgust ought to drive us to our knees in prayer that God would intervene. So let's not forget that verses 6 through 8 aren't just an angry tirade. This isn't David just watching the news and then sort of murmuring and complaining about how bad it all is to his friends. No, that's not what David does. When David is sick at his heart and at his stomach about what he sees around him, he goes to his knees in prayer for God's intervention. And that ought to be the immediate response of anybody who truly follows the Lord, who truly believes on Christ. When we see grievous sin around us, it ought to drive us to prayer. And there are lots of kinds of prayers that it ought to drive us to. Not all of them are mentioned in this psalm. Some of them are. It ought to drive us to prayer for those who are suffering, right? That God would call a halt to it. Isn't that what David prays in verse 6? The reason why he prays, shatter their teeth and break the fangs out of the young lion's mouths is so that they will stop devouring whoever it is that they're devouring. That's the point. 
And then he prays in verse 7 that God would win this, these evil workers when they aim their arrows, that God would make them as headless shafts. In other words, if you ever try to shoot an arrow, if it doesn't have a point or if it doesn't have the feathers on the back, you're not really shooting an arrow. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to go where you want it to go. It's not going to hit a target. So he says, God, protect the sufferers. Protect them. And we need to pray that way. And in addition, we need to spring into action to protect them ourselves sometimes, right? Somebody's got to go and rescue those girls who are enslaved. Someone's got to be willing to adopt the babies who are being protected and who are living and so on. But then we also need not to just pray for the sufferers, but to pray for the perpetrators. And one thing that David doesn't say here, but that the rest of the Bible does say, is that we ought to pray for the perpetrators that God would bring them to repentance. Remember, Jesus, pray for those who persecute you. And what he has in mind there is that we pray that God would get through to them, that their hearts would change. But then this psalm reminds us that a time comes when someone is destroying lives and dishonoring God. A time comes when the sin is so vile and the destruction is so great and the person's ears are so closed and their heart is so hard that we must shift our prayers from God bring them to repentance to let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along. Let them be as the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. And it's hard to know when that point is when we begin to pray that way about some situation or some leader or some person. I can't tell you exactly when it is that you need to pray that way. I don't know when I need to pray that way necessarily. All I'm saying tonight is that Psalm 58 says there is a point where God's people are so revolted by what they see that they begin to pray the way David prays here. So David's assessment of God's enemies, his prayer for God's vengeance, and then thirdly, in verses 9 through 11, we see his thanksgiving for God's justice. David's thanksgiving for God's justice. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, and men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. We can summarize those verses like this. In response to his prayers, David expects that the wicked will be swept away quickly, verse 9, that the righteous will rejoice greatly, verse 10, and that everyone else will know that God judges justly in verse 11. The wicked will be swept away. The righteous will rejoice at God's deliverance. And everyone who's not in one of those two camps will stand back and go, wow, there is a God. And he does judge justly on the earth. Now, I admit, when we look at these verses, I'm not quite sure what to do with verse 10. But verses 9 and 11 remind us why psalms like this one are so important. Psalm 58 and others like it remind us that God is not an old grandpa in the sky who had never heard a flea, but that he is the judge of all the earth and that we will give an accounting for our deeds, every one of us. There is a God who judges on the earth. Let us not get a picture of God that he's a pushover. That's not what the Bible presents, and psalms like this remind us. God will not let the guilty go unpunished, and God will not let the righteous go unrewarded. 
Or as Paul said in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. There is a God who judges on the earth. That's the point in verses 9 through 11. God is just. And David, in these verses, thanks God for that. Thank you, God, that you are just. Thank you that you do what's right. Thank you that you reward righteousness and that you punish iniquity. He thanks him for it. And the lesson, of course, is that we should as well. We should thank God that he is not the spineless pushover that many people imagine him to be. We should thank God for that. Why? Because no one would want a judge like that on the bench if someone raped our sister, would we? You wouldn't want a pushover on the bench if someone abused your little girl or if someone built your grandmother. No. You would want someone who would judge rightly on the earth. And so we should be thankful that no matter how many people get away in the human system with the things that they do, there is a God who judges on the earth. God is not like the spineless pushovers. And we should pray so that, verse 11, other people will see that as well and know that God is not to be trifled with. Thank God he always does what's right now there's a final dilemma from psalm 58 that we need to tackle before we finish and that's this how does all this relate back to jesus where does jesus fit in in this whole mix he fits in somewhere because he tells us doesn't he in luke 24 27 that all the old testament books are about him And so we can't read the Psalms or we can't read Genesis or we can't read Malachi and go, well, Jesus doesn't really fit in here, but there's some really good instruction here. No, all of the scriptures are about him. But it's hard to see it when we read Psalm 58, at least initially. And so the question is, the dilemma is, okay, Jesus told those men, he's walking down the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and they're all upset because Jesus is dead and gone, and they don't even know who it is that's walking with him. And he says, what's the matter with you? And he starts to go through the whole Old Testament, we're told, explaining to them how the Old Testament points forward to him. And the question is, okay, we don't know that he talked about Psalm 58, but if he were to have paused on Psalm 58 that day on the road, as he told them how the Old Testament was about himself, what would he have said about Psalm 58? In other words, how do David's prayers that God would condemn sinners point to Jesus who died so that sinners don't have to be condemned? Isn't that a good question? David prays that God would condemn sinners. Jesus came into the world so that sinners wouldn't have to be condemned. How does Psalm 58 then point to this Jesus? Well, let me mention a couple of ways and then we're through. First, I'll remind you from Psalm 58 or just from the Bible in general that Jesus isn't just coming once. Yes, he came 2,000 years ago to absorb God's judgment on behalf of sinners. He went to the cross and absorbed the judgment that we deserve in our place. But he's coming again someday not to absorb God's judgment on sinners. He's coming again someday to mete out God's judgment on sinners who won't repent. Listen to how the book of Revelation describes it. And I think you'll hear a striking parallel 
to Psalm 58. This is Revelation 19, 11 and following. John writes, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see the connection? David talks about God judging his enemies and and people's feet being covered with blood. And then we read about Jesus coming to judge God's enemies and his robe being dipped in blood. And the point is this. Jesus, in his second coming, in very startling ways, is the answer to Psalm 58 kinds of prayers. When someone prays, God shatter their teeth. God make them like the miscarriages that never see the light of day. When someone prays like that, Jesus is often in his second coming the answer to those prayers. Because sometimes we may think verses like Psalm 58, 11 have fallen to the ground unfulfilled. We say, okay, it says that God judges justly on the earth, but I know of evil, oppressive people who seem to have gotten off scot-free. They died a ripe old age. They die in their sleep. They got plenty of money in the bank and friends around the bed with them. And it doesn't seem at all like verse 11 is true. And so we may wonder, where are God's judgments in moments like that? And the answer is, Jesus is coming. And he will do what verse 9 says. He will sweep them away with a whirlwind and in that day when he returns people will say verse 11 surely there is a God who judges on the earth Jesus is the answer to David's prayers but then notice this finally Psalm 58 is also a reminder of why we needed Jesus first coming the second coming is the answer to these prayers, but this psalm also reminds us of why we ourselves needed the first coming of Jesus. Namely, this psalm is a reminder that all's not right in the world. Right? This psalm is a reminder that the world is messed up, that it's ruined by sin, that people are perishing in sin, and deservedly so, and other people are perishing because of others' sins. That's what this psalm is, is about. And we ought to remember as we look at verse 3 again that we are a part of all that problem. Remember verse 3? The wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray even from birth. And we said that could be written of any of us. We, like David, were conceived in iniquity. We were born sinners. We were estranged, verse 3, even while we were in our mother's wombs. That's why we always find ourselves wrestling to do what we know we ought to do. We all know things we ought to do, and we find ourselves so incapable sometimes of doing it. And it's not because we're naturally good people who just don't have enough good influences in our lives. It's because we are born sinners. That's why we're impatient. That's why we're selfish. That's why we're willful. That's why we're dishonest when we get in a jam. That's why we're proud when someone holds us accountable and we don't want to admit what we did. 
All of those things because we were born that way. And it's evident, as we said before, from earliest childhood that we look out for number one instead of looking out for who is really number one. And the result of that is estrangement, verse 3. And the wages of that sin, Romans 6 says, is death. So this psalm, if we read it with a spiritual mirror in our hands and holding it up before our faces, ought to leave us a little bit uneasy as we read what David says about the unrighteous. Because if we know our own hearts, if we know how often we fail to do what we know we ought to do, we read this psalm and we should say to ourselves, how do I know David's not talking about me? How do I know that I'm not the person that he's praying about? It's not a good feeling. But we need passages like Psalm 58 to remind us that all is not well with the world. And the reason why all is not well with the world is because all is not well with the individuals who are in it, including me, including you. And as the psalm reminds us of those things, it causes us, of course, to long that things would be different to long for a way that we might escape the punishment of verses 6 through 8. Reading about God's judgment causes us to long for someone who might absorb the blow for us, for someone who might have his teeth shattered for us, for someone who might die the death that we deserve. Psalm 58 drives us to look for such a person, and the rest of the Bible tells us that we have such a person, Jesus, right? Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He has caused our sins to fall on him. Psalm 58, I say, drives us to look for a Savior, and the rest of the Bible tells us that we have one. Do you have him? Do you know that God's justice against your sin has been absorbed by another? 